Take your Bibles, turn with them this morning to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter number 4. The story begins on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at the gate of the temple sat a man lame from birth. This man asked them for money, but he received much more. In the name of Jesus Christ, he was healed. Peter commanded him to get up and walk. And the spectacle of this man clinging to Peter and John as he continued to leap up and down, praising God, caused a large crowd to gather in the outskirts of the temple. Peter began preaching to the crowd. It was then that a party of temple guards came up and arrested him. And this is where our story begins, Acts chapter number 4 this morning, as we look at the reaction of the religious leadership in verses 1 through 3. It says, Now as he spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus' name the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. In Acts chapter 1, the promise was given by Jesus that the disciples would receive power. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, they did receive that power. It was the power to become mighty witnesses for Jesus Christ. Thousands of people were saved that day, and the power of God was unleashed. In Acts chapter 3, we saw the power of God used to help people. The lame man who sat by the temple gate was healed. And now in Acts chapter 4, we see the pushback. We see what happens as a result of this healing, as the religious leaders began to try to take in what is happening in their midst. What we see here is a really confused investigation. The religious leaders don't really know what to do. They've never encountered this kind of situation before. The power of God had come down, and now they had to deal with these people who had exercised that power. The believers had been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and now they were proceeding to live out that in faith in God. Whatever that kind of radical transformation takes place, it always creates a stir. In verse 16, we hear them saying, what are we going to do with these men? They didn't know how to respond. God's power had fallen And God's people were on the move. Things were happening. Things that the religious leaders had not counted on. The disciples were preaching boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. A notable healing had taken place in their very midst, under their very noses, and it could not be denied. The question they ask is the same question that the world asks today. Just as the religious leaders didn't know how to respond... So the world does not know how to respond today. When a Christian attempts to live out their faith, they're going to stand out. 
When a Christian really attempts to live with high moral standards, with integrity and honesty, and they refuse to engage in any activity or conversation which would violate the principles of God's Word or hamper their testimony, that kind of person cuts across the grain of the world. And what does the world do? I believe the tactics of the world are usually quite predictable. The first thing they try to do is ignore us. They simply act act as if we are not present. And if they can't ignore us, then the next strategy is to belittle us. Or at least to belittle our faith. Sadly, because of many Christians who have failed in their faith, we have given them quite a bit of ammunition in that regard. If belittling doesn't work, then they seek to intimidate and threaten. They try to use their power or position to control and manipulate us into giving our Christianity a little lower profile. This is how they attempt to answer the question, what shall we do with these Christians? In our text, we find the religious leaders deciding on a plan of intimidation. So they try to intimidate Peter and John into being silent by arresting them. Our enemy, Satan, uses the same process of by <clears throat> trying to develop fear within us to keep us from fully following the Lord Jesus. This process, of course, is called intimidation. And to intimidate is defined as to make timid or fearful. And intimidation is a strategy of Satan by which he attempts to control people. The people in the world who do not know Christ seek to control the people who do know Christ through intimidation. If Christians attempt to live by the Bible in our society, they can expect to come face to face with intimidation. I realize that being bold about our faith is not necessarily easy for most of us. As I look back over my life, there have been many opportunities for me to be bold in my faith. And I have to confess that I have often failed to take those opportunities. Many of us seem to face a major crisis every time we feel that we ought to take a stand or we ought to share our faith with somebody. Perhaps it means not going out with the boys after work, or perhaps it means sharing God's love with our next-door neighbor, or maybe it means telling our co-worker that it bothers us when they use the Lord's name in vain. But don't misunderstand me. <clears throat> to be bold does not mean to be arrogant. It does not mean to be insensitive in pushing our faith on other people. It means taking a stand based on our relationship with Jesus and then letting people know why we took that stand. Letting people know that we are serious about our faith. But don't be surprised that telling others about Jesus is not the most popular thing to do. Don't be surprised when Unsaved people are not happy to be told that Jesus is the only way. In fact, there is much pressure in our world to say that everybody can find their own way of faith and trust. Most of us have two obstacles within us 
which can prevent us from being bold about our faith. The love of human acceptance. We like to be accepted by the people around us. And the love of security. The Apostle Paul spoke on those issues in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 4 through 6. He says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, as a cloak for covetousness. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But in spite of the reaction of the religious leadership, I want you to see, secondly, the result of Peter's preaching. Verse number 4 says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. We're not altogether sure how to interpret the numbers that we find in verse number 4, but whether this means that the total is now 5,000, 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost, that would mean another 2,000 had been saved and added, or whether another 5,000 has been added. It is a staggering, phenomenal number of new believers. No matter how you define the number, the total number of believers was now 5,000 men, that doesn't include women and children, which would be t- put our total closer to 20,000 individuals who the Christian message had touched and reached. Now, the third thing and the most important part of the message today is the response that Peter made to the charges beginning in verse number 5. It says, And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, John and Alexander and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now what is Peter going to do? He has certainly had the opportunity to spend some time thinking about it. He had spent the night in prison. The next morning as he is brought before the Supreme Council, he is really faced with three options. He could apologize for making trouble and hope for the best. But there's no way that Peter's going to do that. He could keep his mouth shut. Peter never was very good at that either. And there is a third option, and that third option is that he could seize the opportunity to tell them the truth, and that is exactly what he does. It really is a question of power or authority, according to the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 7 says, But when they set them in the midst, that is, Peter and John, He says, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. We need to remember that this spirit-filled defense was exactly what Jesus had warned his disciples about just a few months earlier. It's recorded in Luke chapter 21 and verse 12. The Lord had warned them, but Before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, and they will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on the account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. 
And here they are before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme court of the land. The highest legal and religious court in Jerusalem. He does indeed give them the words to say. The words that the, that the ruling council could not refute. Because as their star witness, they have with them a 40-year-old man, a man who has been crippled from birth, a man who has for the last two or three decades sat at the gates of that very temple, a man whom they have themselves seen day after day after day, and they knew that he was crippled, and yet now he is whole. And so there is nothing that the Sanhedrin can do to stop them. First of all, he told them that what had been done was done in the name of Jesus. It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done in the help, to this helpless man, by what means is being made, made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter told them that the only thing that they could be charged with doing was doing a good deed. The lame man who stands before them had been made whole in the name and in the authority of Jesus Christ. And then he told them that Jesus was the chief cornerstone. He says in verse 11, This is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter here is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 118, verse 22. What he is referring to is the occasion of the building of Solomon's temple. The Bible tells us that when Solomon built his temple on this place that now the Dome of the Rock mosque sits in Jerusalem, that there was no sound of hammer or saw. The temple was erected in total silence. The stones that formed the temple were quarried from a rock quarry some distance away. The story is told that during the building of the temple, a great rock was quarried out. It was shaped by the master mason and it was sent up. But the builders couldn't decide what to do with it. They couldn't find any place in the blueprint that it seemed to fit in. And so they left it on the side. It sat there for some time. Then it seemed to be in the way. And so when the time came, <clears throat> they pushed it over the edge and it rolled down into the valley of Kidron. And there it lay. When it came time to set the chief cornerstone, the, the foundation stone of the building, they searched and they searched and they searched and they couldn't find the stone. They sent word down to the quarry, where is the cornerstone? It is time to set the foundation stone, but we cannot find it. Master Mason sent back a message to say, well, we sent that stone up some time ago. And so they sat out of search, and finally somebody remembered a stone being rolled over the edge, and there they found it, down in the valley 
of Kidron. Great effort. They raced it again. And they brought it to the top. And they pushed it into place. And it fit perfectly. The cornerstone of the temple. The stone that he's talking about is the stone of salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 4, Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by men, but chosen and precious to him. Peter was quoting from Isaiah 28 in reference to Jesus Christ, and he wanted to note not only did the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, reject Jesus Christ, but the people down through the centuries had rejected him as well, refusing to submit to him. But Peter says Jesus was chosen and precious to God. In verse 6 of that same passage, he says, For in Scripture it says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That describes salvation. The same stone that the builders had rejected is the one that can save. He can bear the weight of all your guilt. He can bear the weight of all your shame. He can bear your punishment, your death, your judgment. He is the powerful and foundation stone. <clears throat> and then Peter summed it up in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, and he says, To you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone has become a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The truth is that if you reject Jesus Christ, you will see that there will be a day that you will fall. Some people may ask, well, why do you say that, G- that God will make us fall? Isn't God love and isn't he in the business of forgiveness? Yes and yes. But there is a time at which it is eternally too late. And to tell him on the day of judgment that you have rejected the only means that he has given for salvation is eternally too late. In verse number 12, he told them that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Probably one of the most controversial verses in all of the New Testament. Not controversial in interpretation. It's very easy to interpret. Very difficult for some people to accept. Because it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. In our day, it is not the statement that Jesus saves that is offensive. It is the insistence that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Oh, how the world hates that statement. There's a lot of pressure in the world today for us not to say that only those who believe in Jesus are saved. There may come a day in this country where proclaiming the exclusiveness of Jesus as the only way of salvation may be deemed a hate crime. 
The day may come that declaring all other claims of salvation as false will be termed intolerant. But it's still true. When Peter got to the end, he summed it all up. He threw their question back at them and he said, in effect, it is not only the lame man who was healed by the name of Jesus. That name is the only name by which anyone can ever be healed. What needs to be, what needs to happen to you is what happened to the lame man. You too must be saved by Jesus. Every one of us is born with a problem. A sin problem. And the only answer to that problem is Jesus. If one is going to be saved, it must be by God in the way that he has appointed. It is Christ or nothing. Christ or judgment. It is by faith alone in Jesus alone. Christians have a responsibility to tell people that Jesus saves. To be bold, as I've said before, does not mean to be arrogant. It doesn't mean to be insensitive and pushing our faith on other people. It means taking a stand based on our relationship with Jesus and then letting people know why we took our stand. Letting people know that we are serious about our faith. But don't be surprised that telling other people about Jesus is not the most popular thing to do. Don't be surprised when unsaved people are not happy to be told that Jesus is the only way. But it is true. It is what the Bible says. All roads do not lead to heaven any more than all roads lead to New York. There's one way, God's appointed way, His only begotten Son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, those who have gathered here this morning and thank you for their attentiveness and their willingness to listen. I don't know where they all are in their walk with you. Some may not have yet accepted you as their personal Savior. Others may have just begun as new Christians and are really babies in the faith. And others who have been saved for many, many years. But we need to know that truth that the Bible says that there is salvation in no other, that Jesus is the truth and the life, and that no one comes unto the Father except by him. Those are not our words. Those are not our requirements. They are yours. So, Lord, help us. If there's one here this morning that doesn't know you in a personal way, then I pray that this morning they might recognize that they are a sinner, just like all the rest of us who are gathered here. And that our sins separate us from a holy God. But you've already done everything necessary to take care of that sin. You sent your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. He went to the cross. And bearing no sin of his own, he bore our sin. He paid the debt for our sin that we might be free. If they've never done that, then, Lord, I pray that they might see their sin, they might repent of their sin, and they might turn to you and ask to be forgiven. That that transaction can happen in this place, in the quietness of this time, between you 
in them. That they can leave this place knowing they have a home in heaven. Each of us as believers, I pray that you'd help us to reach out. You have over the last few weeks given us remarkable opportunities to show care and love for those people in this world in which we live. Opportunities to minister to other people. Help us, Lord, to continue to focus on looking at people outside this building. Ways in which we can show them what loving Jesus means and how it changes our lives. Father, thank you again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you-